everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes each week speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down once again with Matan's Rosh Bay Midrash and Academic Director, Dr. Yael Ziegler, to speak about Parshat B'Shalach. It's great to be back. Yael, who are we here to speak about today? Um, well, I chose to speak today about someone who I think probably... Many of our listeners probably have not had a lot of exposure to, and that's one of the reasons I chose to speak about him. And that is, uh, Rabbi Moshe Shama, who's the, um, he, he's the head of the Sephardic Institute in Brooklyn. Um, and he wrote this wonderful book called Recalling the Covenant, which is a book on the, on the Parshiot Hashavua. Um, which I came across at some point and, and it moved me and, um, and, and especially, um, his pieces on Shirat Hayam, which is one of the reasons that I thought of him when you asked me to speak on Parshat B'Shalach. Yeah, you know, I think that many shul rabbis or communal leaders sort of always dream of at the end of their, towards the end of their career that they put out some sort of book on Parshat Shavua or their Drashot. But uh, there's something particularly erudite about about this book, which I'm sure we'll get into together. Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't read like you know sermons that yeah. are given from the pulpit, and it wasn't. I mean, it started out, I think, as part of um, I think these seminars that 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 he would give. I mean, there's pieces in the book where he's having a discussion with um, some of his. I don't even know if they're students. Some of his colleagues in the seminar. So it wasn't exactly clear to me because I'm not, you know, I'm not in the community. Um, but he, there was, um, there is a website called Judaic.org where all of these, um, pieces actually appear online. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. We'll, we'll link it to, on, on the show notes. Yeah. Where did you first come across his writings? So, you know, I was trying to trace it back. I found him online. Uh, nobody pointed him, me to him. I found one of these uh, seminars that he gave or one of these Parsha pieces that he wrote. And, um, I, I was preparing a class at the time on Safer Shemot and I found some of his ideas really compelling. Actually, some of them, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, were surprising to me that I found them compelling. So, um, you know, I just kind of found him online and then I started reading some of his ideas and, uh, I was, I was drawn to them. I felt that they, they were very, there were some very, wise ideas and he uh based his ideas in a lot of sources and sources that that you know that, that speak I was, to you that you yeah. that you would also confer yeah, yeah absolutely um and then some of his ideas that i would not have thought that i would have found compelling like some of the number symbolism that he does which i did find compelling and what was interesting was was that I would cite him sometimes in my classes. I went back over my notes to see uh, which ideas I had found compelling. And, and, and some of them were really, as I said, on Parshat B'Shalach. Um, but later in, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years later, I was speaking in the Syrian community in Brooklyn. And um, I, I don't even remember if I mentioned to somebody that I was an admirer of his work or if somebody just came over and handed me his book. 
But this did in fact happen that I was speaking at uh, someone's house in Brooklyn and they gave me his book and it's a very heavy book. My first, uh, I think my first reaction was, Oh no, how am I going to get that in my suitcase with the limited weight <laughs> that I have going back to Israel? But it was well worth the, uh, what, whatever presents from my children I removed in order to bring this book back. You know, I would also say that it's, I don't know, I guess maybe it's not surprising. Maybe he's more well known than we realize, but the book was, in perfect form, sitting in the Haratzion Library, which is where I took took it out uh, from from there. So I guess more people know him than uh, than we realize. Yeah, no, I think in the Syrian community, he's a he's a seminal figure. That's my impression. Again, I, I don't I don't really know personally, and uh, I know that the the there is a strong. Um, uh, kind of connection between the Syrian community and Herzog College. The main reason being um, that the Syrian community are very, very engrossed in the Tanakh. They're very knowledgeable in Tanakh, um, and especially in shot readings of the Tanakh, which is something that I think is, I would say, even, you know, maybe uh, almost a cam- campaign of yeah. Rabbi Shama in this book, this idea that he is a very careful reader of the text itself. He pays careful attention to the nuances, the order, and the pshat, right? The simple meaning of the text, its internal logic, its nuances. So that's, and that's something that I think that the Syrian community in general has um, found in in Herzog, and that's probably why his book is in library. I have no idea why the book is there, but yeah. I wonder where that tradition comes from, where where they've, where they've, you know, brought it from, from their past, but I guess... uh yeah, no, just in general, I think the Tanakh um, is, uh, you know, many of the uh, people I know from the Syrian community can cite the Tanakh, you know, really um, by heart in a way that certainly I didn't grow up with people in my community. Maybe it's, it was their love for the Aleppo Codex. Maybe it, uh, it could be, it could yeah. be connected to that. I don't, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if someone in the Syrian community could explain it or if it's just something that they grew up with as well, which, you know, the, the deep respect and love and, and commitment to Tanakh learning, which I've found in the Syrian community. I mean, whenever I go to America, I, I speak in, in Brooklyn and, and I've met, you know, the, I've, I've, I've encountered firsthand the enthusiasm and mm-hmm. the excitement for Tanakh learning. Great. Okay, so what does he have to offer us on this week's Parsha? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, in general, um, there, maybe I'll just say something about his, um, methodology, you know, some of the things that I saw. So first of all, um, he uses a, a whole range of sources. You know, he's not committed to, uh, using medieval parshanut, shall we say, um, exclusively. He does use medieval parshanut, but I don't know, you know, let's say if I were talking about Nechama Leibowitz, I would probably focus on how deeply focused she is on medieval parshanut, even though she uses modern scholars as well. Um, but he's very sensitive to not just the literary, but also the background. Because he's interested in Pshat, he's interested in the uh, geography. He's interested, you know, we have it in this week's Parsha where he talks about, um, he, he talks about where uh, Chorev is, right? Uh, given that um, God tells Moshe in Parshat Shemot that when you, when he takes Amisal out of Mitzrayim, you will worship God on this mountain. And given the, the beginning of this week's Parsha, we're told that God is not going to take Amisrael on the shortest route 
to the land of Israel. So he uh, engages the question, where is Chorev? Right? So he's interested in geography. He's interested in um, ancient Near Eastern literature. Very interested in that. He's at least attuned to it. Uh, you know, it certainly is not the focus, but he is very much attuned to it. You're never going to find, I think, I mean, I kind of, I can't say I've read the entire book, but I kind of flipped through to find the places where I would expect him to engage in a discussion about ancient Near Eastern literature, like, you know, the flood story. I don't know, you know, the legal codes. He talks about Hammurabi at great length. Um, and he does, you know, he's always, um, going to bring that up. And, and also in this week's Parsha, right? In, in Parsha B'Shalach, he notes that the song doesn't mention any human, right? Not even Moshe, which I think, you know, is, is a, is an important point. It's one that is, is frequently noted. And he says that that's in opposition to ancient Near Eastern texts where, you know, you have these songs or, or poetry which glorifies humans. Um, you know, he also notes maybe even more explicitly that so many of the stylistic features of Shiratayam retain similarities to Ugaritic poetry, which of course has been noted by others. Yeah. Uh, from what I've seen, yeah, Casuto. I mean, what I, I see that he, he brings him a lot, um, and that there's definitely influence from there. Uh, I, I think that also maybe it's interesting to note that it seems, again, we're speaking here from our impression from his book, but it seems that his interest stems from his prism through Casuto or other commentators. I, I don't think that that was his formal training, meaning I think he's come to it through his exposure to some of those Parshanim. Yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting is from what I can see about his biography is that um, he was trained in Neri Israel Rabbinical College, and in the Yeshiva Gvoa in Lakewood, I mean, that's what it says here in his biography, which I think is extraordinary. You know, both of these places, certainly, um, he wouldn't have, I would imagine, wouldn't have encountered. Yeah, wouldn't have encountered this training. Nor would he be involved in the Syrian community in those places, meaning there was, he had to go where one could learn Torah in those days, obviously, and that's where he could go. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he, and then it says that he received a master's education, a master's degree in education from the Loyola College of Maryland. So he does have, you know, certain academic training. But not in Bible per se. So, it, from from his biography, it seems that he's an autodidact. Um, he is also, I think, and this is very much uh, to my liking. Right? He's also very uh, careful to stay, you know, within the bounds of tradition. Right? He he states very unequivocally that Tanakh is uh, prophetically inspired literature. And he even when he talks about the poetic features of Shirat Hayam being similar to Ugaritic poetry, he says, you know. Um, it makes sense from the shop perspective that the form of Tanakh um, should share similarities to what's going on in the culture, but that ultimately it points to a unique idea, and particularly the monotheistic idea, um, which is so different from the from the environment. And, and that I think is really, um, I mean, that's that's. It, it, that's very much something that I am looking for. And I think it's pretty remarkable that he, uh, you know, that he's able to, um, acquire all this on, on his own without any, you know, at least from what I can tell from his, from his biography, without any formal training. He's, he's very, very careful, um, about his boundaries. Yeah. But at the same time is really just, um, very broad in his, uh, in his use of sources. Yeah. I also think it's interesting to note that. Okay, so in the last two years, we have uh, you know Josh Berman 
put out the book Animamin for people looking to try and sort of figure out how they can jive all the knowledge we have from the ancient Near East with traditional views of Judaism. And so you have some readers or things that are sort of able to put things in perspective, let's say. But I would say even with that, but certainly up until two years ago before that book came out, if we can call it sort of like a moment in, in Orthodox uh, awareness, um, anybody who studies or who goes into the world of academic uh, Bible study, everybody has to come to some sort of personal theology at a certain point. Like, let's just call a spade a spade, right? There's a reason why people are, were concerned for many years, you know, when, when young religious people would go into, into academic Bible study. Uh, and so, here you have sort of a phenomenal example of somebody who clearly went deep in and was part of an observing community and came out ultimately with a personal, a personal theology, a personal perspective on, 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 on Tanakh and how to bring in all of the extra biblical ideas and evidence. And I think that ultimately, even with the, the, the greater tools we do have today, or you can go to places that are religious environment, anybody who is genuinely engaging with academic Bible study, has to create some sort of personal theology for themselves and their own boundaries. I'm clearly speaking from a very personal space, yeah. but I mean, both of us, I assume, right? You, you, you jump in the deep end. You have to figure out how to swim. You know, if you want to swim and stay in the pool, you have to figure out what are your, what are your boundaries. Yeah. Uh, and so here I think is a great example of someone who did that just from a very unexpected direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, you know, I think his, um, uh, his readings, and a lot of them really, as you said before, do come from Casuto, um, but they, they, they Moshe seek David to- Moshe David Casuto, the Italian, uh, commentator from, uh, from the previous century. Yeah, mm. that you spoke about with Shuli in, in Parshat Shmot. At oh, the in end Parshat of Shmot, the, yes. Yeah, the end of the podcast of yeah. Parshat Shmot. But, you know, he does really, I think, seek to inspire, which, which, is in my mind the measure of um, ultimately a, a, a good a good book, a good essay, a good cheer is that you know you're not just doing something which is intellectually satisfying. You know, so you know he'll talk about, uh, for example, also in Shiratayam, he cites Kasuto saying that Shiratayam um, can be read as a contrast to so much of ancient Near Eastern cosmic mythology where you have that powerful sea god, right? Remember um, that, you know, um, so much of, of you know, our area, our geographical location, right? The ancient Near East, the Levant is on the coast and, and Ugarit as well was on the coast and they see the sea and the sea is powerful and it's monstrous and it's dangerous. And, you know, uh, what he notes in, you know, like Kasuto notes, is that in Shiratayam, only God rules over the sea. It is God that is above all nature. And that's, that's a chiddish, right? That's, a, that's an innovative point. Um, so, you know, there, there's something, and then, you know, he cites also, um, other psukim that, um, where we have that image of God, you know, uh, controlling the sea in particular, but all uh, natural phenomena, you know, so came from Yishayahun and Aleph, he cites, but there's others also in Tehillim, in Eov. And, um, and what we see, I, I think, is, is that there's a, a, a sense that the Tanakh uh, is in a certain cultural environment, but it uses it's it, it, that environment to give a very different message. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more point about Rabbi Shama that I think is, you know, it speaks to me very deeply. Um, and partially I think because Chazal do it as well is that, you know, he, he reads 
the Tanakh as one corpus, right? It's not reading each book as a separate and distinct book, but he's very intertextual, right? And, you know, he, any, any Pasuk or any, um, uh, you know, any chapter, any parak that he reads, he immediately sees it within the corpus of all 24 books. And, you know, in my mind, if you don't do it that way, you're going to miss some of the, some of the big messages of mm-hmm. Tanakh. Yeah, where they're all trying to speak with, to each other and with each other and throughout the generations. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Shiratayam because that's, of course, the centerpiece of Parshat Bishalach, right? We know that from the Torah, where Chazal choose, uh, Shirat Devorah, or whoever chooses the Haftarah, chooses Shirat Devorah in order to, uh, emphasize the, the, uh, the centerpiece of this parsha, which is a Shira. So, you know, um, what I really loved about the way that he reads the Shira is that, you know, he, he looks at the technique that's used in, uh, the Shira in order to try to mine it for its ideas, right? And he divides the Shira into its different, he calls them strophes, right? Which I guess are really just stanzas. Um, one of the things that he notes that I think is really, um, significant is that each stanza ends with a doubled, um, uh, pasuk, which, you know, Rashi kind of notes that in um, pasuk gimel, right? Uh, pasuk, no, sorry, pasuk. Yeah, pasuk gimel. Hashem ishmechama, Hashem shmo. And Rashi says, well, there's a, there's a doubling here. I think I think Rashi says it on pasuk gimel, but you know that's a doubling in the name of Hashem. But then we have it again in pasuk vav. Yimincha Hashem needari bakuach. Yimincha Hashem. So the words, your right arm. God, you know, your right, um, uh, God, um, is doubled there. And then, of course, we have again in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Mi Chamocha Be'elim Hashem, Mi Chamocha, Mi Kamocha Ne'edar Bakodesh, who is like you, who is like you. That's our next doubled. And in Pasuk Tetzayin, we have the words Adya Avor, Adya Avor, doubled. And so he, he used, he, first of all, he points it out, which I think is something that, um, you know, you, you read Shiratayam, we say Shiratayam every day in Psuke de Zimra, and we're not necessarily always paying attention to these structural elements. It's very possible that those also were parts that were sung in a different tune, meaning when you have things that repeat themselves, especially in Tehillim, often the suggestion is, well, there probably was a tune here, and, yeah. and then it was it's written twice, meaning it's part of the chorus to a certain degree. Yeah, or maybe even it's uh, a response. Uh, it's response. reciprocal. Yeah. yeah, we have one side saying one, and then they're responding exactly. That's There's right. different different theories about how to understand these things. Of course, when we read it just linearly on a piece of paper, we we lose some of that element. But there clearly was some sort of liturgical aspect that that came along with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, one kind of interesting piece of evidence uh, that it was maybe sung in responsa is in pasuk kaf aleph after shiratayam when Miriam begins to sing. The word that is used is vataan lahem. Miriam, uh, which vataan 
in modern Hebrew means to answer, but in Tanakh, it means to respond. It, it means to sing, right? When, oh, okay. when, when, uh, Yoshua and Moshe have that discussion, uh, after Chet Egel, he says, Kol Anot Bamachana, the sound of singing mm. is in the Machana. And it achieves at some point a kind of derivative meaning of to answer because singing was done responsively, yes. right? So here we have this, um, uh, you know, this kind of, description of um, different paragraphs, which for me really enabled me to see Shiratayam as, um, you know, uh, see the structure of Shiratayam. So that's one point that I, that, that, uh, that I thought was very important. By the way, the end of the Shira ends without a doubled um, without a doubled uh, um, pasuk, it ends. I mean, again, there's some question as to where it ends, but I'm going to end it in pasuk yudchet Hashem yimloch leolam va'ed, which the fact that it's not doubled makes it so stark. And 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 Rabbi Shama notes that the word melech with regard to Hashem is used very infrequently in the Torah, and this is, of course, the first place that. Uh, God is referred to as a king. And he, he suggests, and I think he, he, this is a very astute suggestion that this is a response to the outsized role of the king in Egypt, the human king in Egypt, so that Hashem becomes the, the kind of final sentence of Am Yisrael's acknowledgement that we've left Egypt. We're no longer in a place where we're celebrating human kingship. Right? Of course, I, I'll add to that, not something that Rabbi Shama said, but that the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim opens with a king, right? right? A new king arises over Egypt and it closes with a king. But of course, it's the triumphant kind of conclusion of the, 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 the divine king. Yeah, I'll wonderful. say one more thing about the doubled thing, which is that when we read it in Tefillah in the morning... We repeat Hashem Yimloch Le'olam Va'ed. Yeah, Nachon, right? It's almost like a, it's just like an impulse, right? It has to fit with the, with the others. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I only noticed that after I, I began to notice this doubling in the wake of reading Rabbi Shama's um, structural observations here. So let's talk a little bit about his number symbolism. It almost is like a, a new age, much more, um, much more sophisticated sort of gematria. <laughs> let's see how he really has a whole section at the end of the book, uh, of the book and appendix about, uh, about number symbolism. Uh, and there, there's an interesting appeal to it. So what, what did you think about that, Yale? Yeah. So, I mean, here's the part where I said I thought it was pretty surprising that I was drawn into it. Um, you know, Rabbi Shama, um, uh, often talks about symbolism in, uh, words and ca- he counts words. He's, he seems to be a word counter. And, uh, he takes us, of course, from Casuto. You want to, yeah, you know, I, yeah, no, I, it's, Casuto does that also. He focused really on the number seven. It was part of his effort to really try and show the unity of the Torah. And it was part of his effort to really discount the documentary hypothesis by showing that there was a real inherent uh, coherence to the Torah. So he takes it those from a whole other level here in, in this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, I, I think that I said something, um, uh, not accurate. He claims that he gets it from his, uh, Rav, Rabbi uh, Solomon Sassoon. And he says, um, he quotes him, he cites a him a lot. Yeah. He yeah. cites him a lot. Yeah. And he says that, that, um, that, that, you know, he, um, 
saw all these number patterns, and now Rabbi Shama is taking it to the next level. But he also does cite Kasuto. So it's pretty well known that in Perak Aleph, Kasuto finds the number seven in all sorts of various ways. You know, he says, oh, the first pasuk of the Torah has seven words, and the second pasuk has 14 words, and the first section of the Torah has 35 um, uh, Elohims, right? And he does- Multiples of seven. Multiples of seven, right? And um, you know, he expands it in his own way. He says, well, you know, in the prologue of Breshi Perak Aleph, which he says are, you know, the first two psukim, there are 21 words. And in the six days section, there are 413 words, which is 59 times seven. And in the part of Shabbat, which Kasuto observes as well, uh, you know, Perak Bet Psukim Aleph through Gimel, there are 35 words, which mm-hmm. is also a multiple of seven. Yeah. So, you know, he kind of takes this idea of the symbolism of nu- of numbers to another level. He talks a lot about the numbers eight and 13. Some of it I did not find particularly uh, compelling, but I will tell you what I did find compelling. It's in this week's Parsha. Um, it actually starts in Parshat Vaira, where he talks about Patterns of 26. Now, 26, of course, is the gematria of Shem Havaya, of Shem Hashem. And therefore, he is looking for patterns of uh, 26 words. And he shows how at the beginning of Parshat Ve'era, when God introduces Shem Havaya, right? Remember, Hashem says, Ani Hashem Ve'era el Avraham Yitzchak Ve'akov Be'el Shaddai Ushmi Hashem Lo Nodati Lahem, right? I am God. I appear to the Avot with the name El Shaddai, but I never made, made known uh, the name Havaya. So he says that passage has to be divided into two. And there are 102 words in the passage. And the first 50 words and the second 50 words are uh, the two words in the middle are Ani Hashem. Mm-hmm. Right? So that it ends up that if you include those two words with both halves, both halves have 52 words, which is a multiple of 26. So I actually found that really interesting because it's, okay, so Yosefa doesn't like it so much, but what he did in Shirat Hayam, again, he said, the first part of Shirat Hayam has 102 words. Is this becoming more compelling for you? Maybe. And the 26th <laughs> word is Hashem Ishmachama Hashem Shmo. That's the 26th word. So, I don't know, you know. <laughs> no, I, look, I, I think that what's interesting about it is that this is the the meaningful, magical part for somebody who's so intensely pshat-focused. Meaning, being so pshat-focused is, is, and I am also, okay, in my, in my teaching, but it's spending a lot of time on in what we would call in Hebrew the tzura, the form of the text. And so when we spend so much time looking at the tzura, we try and figure out all different ways to like mine the tzura for meaning, you know? And so... So the numbers thing, so it, push, it pushes my envelope a little bit. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, but I understand that for someone that's incredibly meaningful. I mean, you you read Kasuto about how meaningful he feels the number seven is, and how for him it is like the pinnacle of the of of the of the belief of how much the Torah coheres as a whole, and it's very inspiring. Does it do it for me personally? Not so much, but but that's okay. Do you know? Right. It, no, it, it's it's really fine. But to me, it's deeply connected to the intense shot focus of because I'm not going to go. It, um, you know, you and I, you know, I would, I think both of us find tremendous meaning in wordplay and how Midrash will take a word and it could make me cry in a moment. And for someone else, the number coherence is utterly meaningful for them and, and great. You yeah, know, that, that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you mostly, which is why I was somewhat pleasantly surprised by the way that this, I thought, worked into the idea of 
the text. In other words, in both of these passages that I'm citing, and you know, I'm not citing pa- uh, passages where I found it less compelling, but in both of these passages, it intertwined with the introduction of God's name of Shem Havaya. Right. So that when, when God introduces himself, there's these, you know, kind of plays with the number 26. And when, uh, Am Yisrael finally recognizes God's name, and it's so much a part of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim story where Paro's name is erased, right? And instead, God's name is introduced. And so there's this sense of, you know, Leman Saper Shmi Bechola Aretz. The whole reason that we have this, uh, the, the plague narrative is, to tell God's name. And then when Am Yisrael finally recognizes it, Hashem Ishmachama, Hashem Shmo, God is his name. There's also this kind of undercurrent of this, this, this number pattern. So I liked it because it matched the meaning. Um, I don't think it provides the meaning, but it supports the meaning. To end the conversation, let's talk a little bit about his approach to Midrash, which, uh, as one can guess from his emphasis on Chap, He's a little bit more hesitant regarding uh, inculcating Midrashim. Yeah, well, I mean, he he likes Midrashim, and he says that we have to uh, look at Midrashim as moral inspiration, inspirational education. We just have to be very, very hesitant to accept it as pshat. He actually sees this as uh, a, a very, very important educational principle because he's afraid that if we take the Midrash too literally, it will lead to mockery, especially right, which is what the Rambam. That, that's that's yeah. directly from the Rambam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, he brings all these examples, and he happens to talk about it in this week's parsha in Parsha B'Shalach. Um, and you know, here I really, uh, in in you know, I certainly agree with him that midrashim have to be read more deeply than just taking them as a literal or historical fact, but. Actually, I see oftentimes even some of these fantastic midrashim, even some of these midrashim which are far from the pshat, reflect and even provide what uh, I call the deep pshuto shel mikra, the deeper meanings of the narrative. Not just using the narrative as some kind of, you know, takeoff point for educational messages, but really reflecting the deeper meaning. So, you know, I'll give you uh, maybe two examples, and with that, we'll conclude. One example is when he talks about the Midrash of Yosef's bones being sunk deep into the Nile. So, you know, it's clearly this is a Midrash. We know nothing about this from the text. Um, and yet, what I, what I would suggest is, is that, you know, when you look at Yosef's trajectory, right? He starts out in the land of Canaan. He makes his way to Egypt. He finds his way to the, 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 the house of Paro. He becomes deeply Egyptian. And the idea that the Midrash, I think, is providing is that, you know, he's sunk deep into the Nile, right? He, he's having a hard time, um, emerging from Egypt. How beautiful is it that the Midrash says, who's able to pull him out of Egypt? It's Moshe who makes the opposite trajectory. He starts out Moshe's life as an infant sunk in the Nile, moves to the king's palace, and then he's the one who moves the people out of Egypt. So he takes with him Yosef's bones. And you can't forget Sarah in those Midrashim, right? You have to have the woman there who is going to help them find the keys, is going to help her... (laughs) Right, you always That's have right. to have a woman, even the midrashim, also the nashim tzit kaniot, even in the midrash. Yeah, yeah. So, check, I out, mean, check out Sarah Chabat Asher, another one of my favorite topics. Maybe yeah. I'll, do, I'll do a different podcast about her. Yeah, uh, that that is true, right? And we saw that also with the women. You know, the, her place in the midrash yeah. definitely reflects the shot of yes, the place of the women. One hundred percent. 
Um, I'll, I'll mention one final example, which again is a midrash that he brought and said, well, you know, it's not pshat. And that is that, you know, when, uh, the pasuk tells us in this week's parsha, lonish arbahem ad echad about the Egyptian army, you know, not even one was left. The midrash says, oh yes, Paro was, right? Some of you may know this from, uh, Prince of Egypt, you know, Paro sitting on the rock shouting, Moses. Mephorash, you know, yeah, right? Mephorash and Prince it's, of Egypt. It's a Mephorash, uh, Spielberg, uh, uh, midrash, right? But the Midrash says Para was spared. And, you know, um, uh, Rabbi Shama says, but this isn't the Pshat. But I want to suggest it is the Pshat, right? Because it says, Loni Sharbahem Ad Echad. Um, and the question is, is, does it mean except for one or not even one? And the answer may emerge from the parallel section that we uh, that we read as part of the Haftarah or that we reference as part of the Haftarah, which is the story of Sisra, right? And also in, uh, in that story, in Perak Dalid, we're told that Sisra, uh, gets off of his chariot and, um, and, and, you know, Barak, who has chased Sisra's army, uh, kills them all, Lefi Cherev, Lonishar Ad Echad, right? And we know that Sisra has left. Exactly. So there so, means that there is someone left. Yeah. yeah so, sure. I mean, ultimately, I think that in this particular Midrash, there's not just an idea, which is Pshuto Shel Mikra, which is the, 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 the simple meaning of the text, but it even is reflected perhaps in uh, Chazal's attempt to interpret the language. Right, so you're saying that in this particular note that it, he has a very particular approach to Midrash for you, it, you know, it has its limits, that you really uh, want to be careful to still inculcate that and not just relegate it to the world of not shot. Yeah, or educational messages, something that is far from the simple meaning. Sometimes it reflects the deeper simple meaning, even if it doesn't reflect history. It's telling you the deeper meaning. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Studies. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.